The Energy Gang is brought to you by the folks over at PG&E who are driving toward a clean transportation future. In most of the U.S., transportation is the single source of greenhouse gas emissions. That's certainly true in California, and it's why PG&E is working hard to make it easier for customers to go electric. Be it new rebates on your personal vehicle purchase or support by adding charging stations to a parking lot and electrifying your fleet, PG&E can help individuals, businesses, and cities invest in the right electrified transportation option. Find out more at pge.com gtmev. Support for the Energy Gang also comes from Wonder Capital. Wonder has already financed more than 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects, and now they are expanding into solar plus storage, community solar, you name it. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community or commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com gtm. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. In Boston, I'm Stephen Lacey. I am a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. It's been a decade since the fracking boom reshaped U.S. energy markets, so will we ever use our drilling prowess to create a similar geothermal boom? The government has released a roadmap to get us there. It is thick. It's more like an atlas. We're going to open it up and see which borehole it takes us down. Then, more presidential climate ideas. Within hours of one another, the Biden and Warren campaigns both unveiled their energy and climate plans. Have they risen to the political and environmental stakes? Finally, why are states squandering billions in settlement dollars from the VW diesel scandal? In the fair city of Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton. She's our co-host, the co-chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hello. It is beautiful here in D.C. today. Have you gotten your check for the VW money yet? (laughs) I did not buy the line that diesel was clean. (laughs) Out in San Francisco is Jigger Shaw. He is uh, sitting in a hotel room waiting to go to his company retreat. So uh, between trust falls, volleyball games, and employee skits, you're you're sitting here taking some time to talk with us, Jigger. Always (laughs) my favorite time of the week. (laughs) Do you have any roommates? No, but maybe we should. Maybe we should put him in the, those cabins where everybody has bunk beds. <laughs> oh, he doesn't work for an NGO. He has an actual <laughs> business. <laughs> Let's take a look at this gigantic geothermal report, shall we? I can remember more than a dozen years ago when an MIT research panel released this massive report on America's geothermal potential. Many of us in the press covered it breathlessly. The conclusion was we could get 100 gigawatts of engineered geothermal or EGS systems by 2050 here in America. EGS is basically the clean equivalent of fracking. I know a lot of people in geothermal would disagree with me there, but if you don't understand the technology that well, just think of it as a cleaner version of fracking. You drill a well, you engineer a closed-loop system, you use the steam to create electricity. You're actually creating the well uh, artificially. Well, we did end up getting a drilling revolution. It was just in fracking for oil and gas. In the years since, oil and gas has been the beneficiary of decades of government research into new drilling techniques So can the Department of Energy, alongside industry, step up to a new challenge and meet the potential of geothermal? That's the hope. And last week, DOE released this report revisiting America's geothermal potential in conventional hydrothermal, enhanced geothermal, direct use, heat pumps, 
and the potential is still massive, but it's just sitting there largely untapped. This report provides some insight into how to crack open this market. Catherine has been digging through the report. Jigger has been working a lot in geothermal. So uh, let's talk about how we can make this resource a reality. Catherine, what is in this actual report? Like, what is it? And what does it conclude about the resource? Yeah, so the GeoVision report is pretty comprehensive. It has, as if you look at a thread by Tim Latimer, he just goes on and on about how cool the charts and pictures are. And that's absolutely true. And what the goals are. So business and as Tim usual, Latimer is from Fervo Energy, which is a company working on enhanced geothermal systems. And they were invested in by Bill Gates Breakthrough Energy Ventures. So they're working hard on this problem. Right. And the report tackles really three different types of geothermal. If you think about geothermal electricity with the big power plants that we talk about, they that they're saying business as usual is about six gigawatts by 2050. But if you improve technology, and if you improve technology and gas prices go up, you can have between 60 and 120 gigawatts by 2050. And I would say folks in the industry think you could do even better if you have in increased technology improvement. They also cover geothermal heat pumps, where they say about 28 million households in the US could have those, um, and district heating. Um, for which with technology improvements, you can enable about 17,500 systems. So all of these just show that it's an incredible untapped energy giant, they call it. This resource that is there for us, if we can get more increased access to geothermal resources, if we can reduce cost um, and improve the economics, including soft costs, and then also increase education and outreach. So research institutions, government labs, put together any number of reports on all kinds of renewable resources showing we have this massive untapped potential. And a dozen years ago, MIT put out this really good report on enhanced geothermal systems, and not much has happened since then. So is this report any different, Jigger? Once again, it shows we have this huge resource, but once again, it shows we're not harnessing it properly. Does this change anything, or is this just yet another report that's going to sit on a shelf somewhere? It's a good report. And I think that when the Department of Energy puts them out, whether it's for low impact hydro or for biomass or for other things, it's a really valuable exercise. And so I hope that the DOE continues to do the work to update them regularly. I think in the case of geothermal, the challenge is that people did read the last report. So in 2006, when MIT put out their report, um, there was something close to around $400 million that came together under U.S. Geothermal and a number of other startup developers. Um, many of them got loan guarantees out of the Obama administration, and a lot of projects were built. Um, and so, so I think that we actually have a data set for how well those projects did or did not do. And that data set is what's informing private sector investors and keeping them out of large utility scale geothermal. What do you mean it's keeping them out of it? The data shows that they shouldn't get into it? Yeah. Well, when you look at the vast majority of those projects, the only people that have really been successful is Ormat. Um, the rest of the field that, you know, whether it's Altarock or others, basically have failed, right? I mean, many of those projects that were drilled back in 2008, 2009, 2010, went through two or three rounds of bankruptcy until U.S. Geothermal got purchased by ORMAT. Um, 
And even the ones that are trading hands now are Chevron facilities back from the 1980s that are you know still around, right? And so one of the challenges with geothermal is that the last 10 years of experience hasn't led investors to think, oh, these guys have cracked the code on geothermal development. Yeah, and I would just say I did spend quite a bit of time talking with Susan Petty from Alta Rock. She was the founder of Alta Rock, and now it's uh, it's been bought by Cirque, but they both still exist. And they try to get as much out of existing plants as they can, but they also have been looking at new technology for a long time. And part of the issue is that um, especially the DOE has been very focused on using oil and gas technology to try to also jumpstart geothermal. And that they've tried all of that and it only works to a point because it's just different. And as Susan explained, and I am not technological on geothermal, but you know, it's just a different process. They're not sedimentary layers to follow. There's not a seam you're looking for. The horizontal drilling doesn't work for geothermal. Um, and then a lot of the polymers that are used are just, you know, won't, will also not work with geothermal. And the heat that you need to get from a geothermal resource is so corrosive to traditional equipment that it can just eat up your casing and your whole drilling unit. So she just said it's, it's, they've tried the oil and gas route and that that's not really going to be the best path at this point because she thinks that's just going to, it takes a lot of money to do this. Um, it's hugely capital intensive. So she, her thought is we need to get to these super critical temperature, um, places where you get very, very high, um, temperatures like in excess of 370 degrees centigrade, that's over 700 degrees Fahrenheit, um, to really get to, in those technology advancements to get as much as you can out of it. So that means drilling deeper and deeper and deeper, sometimes a mile or more under the ground, right? Yeah, she thinks like under six kilometer depths, you could probably get as much as you need. But yeah, it's pretty deep. When we talk oil and gas, I don't think we're talking technology, although the report does you know, tie the two together. I think what we're talking about is is patience, right? An oil an oil developer when they do a deep sea drill, you know, it might take him two and a half, three years of preparation before they actually even drill that well, and then it's another two and a half, three years to actually put in the infrastructure to get the oil out of the ground. That six year project is something that is you know is normal in a geothermal development cycle and one that private sector investors really just can't handle. Yeah, and I would also say, Jigger, that there are some policy constraints. Um, the production tax credit and investment tax credit geothermal had for two years and then for three years, but now they don't have it. And as you say, you have to be really patient and you have to have it long enough to actually take advantage of it. So that tax credit, while super useful, was was not great for geothermal. Um, the other piece of policy is renewable portfolio standards, which really focus on increased capacity. And increased capacity favors technologies that don't have to be available all the time. You know, they can be, you know, as long as there's the, the capacity there, it doesn't count availability. And I think, you know, because it geothermal is not on the level playing field because of that, it just we just haven't seen any policy constructs that have worked very well. If you want to unlock geothermal, pay them a 20 cent PPA. You know, the challenge with geothermal is unless it's old, it's very similar to nuclear in this way, unless it's an old paid off plant, it's expensive. If you want to build a new utility scale geothermal plant that we've looked at, the PPAs have to be at least 9.9 .9 cents a kilowatt hour for 
20 years. And remember, that 9.9 cents a kilowatt hour is not at an 18 or 19% capacity factor like you have with solar. That 9 or 10 cents a kilowatt hour is at a 90 plus percent capacity factor. So now you're paying that all year round. By the way, the same thing is true for biomass electricity, right? Like in general, for these 24-7 power sources, they're expensive. So if the renewable portfolio standards want these 24-7 power sources in the mix, they just have to mandate that they're in the mix. As we've identified these challenges, we've been largely applying them to utility-scale geothermal geothermal district heating and geothermal heat pumps for commercial residential heating and cooling have a huge potential as well. Uh, The geothermal district heating potential could equal 28 million households, heating and cooling for 28 million households. Uh, That's 14 times greater than existing installed capacity, according to the report. And when we look at heat pumps, they could by 2050 make up almost a quarter of residential heating and cooling market share. Now, I think the challenges are really steep for utility scale. Are they as steep for these technologies to get us to that really high level outlined in the report? No, I mean, for the residential and commercial heat pump technology, they're just drafting the solar industry now. So when you look at FICO-based um, financing, whether it's from Solar Mosaic or Lone Pal or Dividend Solar or others, they all are, you know, getting comfortable with geothermal heat pumps and air source heat pumps now. So I don't think that will be an issue going forward. I think the other piece of this also, though, is that I I was talking to a good friend at Radiant Labs, and what he reminded me of was that um, the biggest problem with geothermal is that it's more expensive than natural gas for heating, but it's way cooler than electricity for uh, air conditioning, right? For your normal HVAC unit for air conditioning. And so if you can actually power your geothermal system with solar, which is by and large cheaper than grid power almost in every state across the country now, then it makes your geothermal system more cost-effective. Anybody who wants to see a really cool district geothermal heating plant, go to Boise, Idaho. It's the whole city, and it's the oldest in the country, and uh, it's it's really pretty impressive. It feels to me like district heating and heat pumps are going to be like the solar PV of geothermal, and engineered geothermal systems are going to be like the concentrating solar power version of solar that's much more difficult to develop and costly to develop and ultimately doesn't go very far? No, I don't think it's a technology issue, which I've always had problems with concentrating solar, as you know. But I think the in geothermal's case, it's about creating the feedback loop on the utility scale plant side. And the utility companies in this country just have to agree that they want to do that, or policymakers, right? I mean, the first PPAs will be at 10 cents, and then Tim Latimer's company and the other 10 competitors to his company will, you know, duke it out and figure out a way to get the initial grants from DOE. And, you know, like, we need to actually start a cycle of, you know, incremental innovation to get the current geothermal systems from 10 cents kilowatt hour down to, you know, something that looks and feels a lot more like where we want utility scale power to come out at. Plus, if we get a president in the next term that really wants to do a Green New Deal, then we may be able to actually fund some of these projects. Let me ask a variation of the first question I asked to wrap up. As you read this report today and you look at all these challenges, do you feel any differently 
in terms of hope of what the geothermal industry can achieve than you did back in 2006 when this initial geothermal resource assessment was released. We haven't gone very far in the last 13 years. Do you look at this report and feel any differently about where we can go after we've identified this massive resource once again? Yes, on distributed geothermal, no on utility scale geothermal. I'm optimistic, but I also don't follow this industry as closely as others. And so, you know, to me, this seems all wonderful and new, but it, I know that it has been around and slogging, slogging around for a while. Let's take a quick break and talk about our supporters of the show. Hey, it's not just geothermal that's hard to develop. Community solar and commercial solar can be hard to develop too. Even though it's distributed, it's got all sorts of challenges. And that's why Wonder Capital has jumped in to help. If you're frustrated by traditional financiers, slow processes and inflexible offerings, Wonder Capital is here to get your project executed. And it just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to financing projects in other ways that lenders can't. And that includes up to 100% residential offtake. Head on over to wondercapital.com GTM to submit your solar projects today. And hey, maybe even someday they'll do geothermal solar hybrids. We're also brought to you by PG&E. And those folks over at PG&E are working hard to get your EV fleets electrified. If you're a company or an organization in PG&E's Northern California territory, you've got all sorts of resources to make your fleet electric. School buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, or other fleet vehicles, they all can get electrified with PG&E's help. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists at pge.com slash gtmev. A day after we released our assessment of how energy and climate is being tackled by the presidential field, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden both put out their trillion-dollar plans. Alongside the Green New Deal, the Evergreen Economy Plan, a green GI Bill, and the Green Civilian Conservation Corps, we now have a green Apollo plan, a green Marshall plan, and a green moonshot on the table. We're just missing, what, like a green Social Security Administration, a green Federal Deposit Insurance Program, What will the presidential candidates green next? Since we devoted so much time to the other candidates and mentioned that both Biden and Warren hadn't gotten as detailed, it's worth revisiting what they're calling for now. So, Jigger, Biden was criticized when his campaign floated in the press this middle-of-the-road plan. His actual plan was much different. It seemed to be a response to the criticism that they got. What happened? What's in it? Well, I think that what happened was that he got a lot of pressure on putting out a comprehensive plan, right? I mean, and I think that it matters that we pressure these folks to, you know, to make climate change this uh, top priority. Um, Otherwise, they're not going to do it. So I think that part is great. I think that most of his plan follows other people's plans. The one thing that I thought that Joe Biden did really uh, well was the international portion, right? Using the United States's standing in the world, which may be diminished by the time he gets there, but um, to actually, you know, influence other countries to also take the similar Green New Deal bold actions that we want the United States to take. And I think that is truly important and one and a piece that was missing from everyone else's plan. 
The thing about Joe Biden's plan is that because he was vice president and helped run the federal government, he knows those programs really well. It's like not completely dissimilar from Jay Inslee, who knew what the DOE and other programs were. But Biden actually knows how to use executive authority. So he didn't step out and say, I'm going to make Congress do this or I'm going to do something, do X in which you have to have Congress act before you can actually implement it. These were a lot of his ideas were things that he could do if he were president and had the full force of the federal government alongside him. So it, it was in my mind, uh, a more realistic approach than some of them, even if it wasn't um, super aspirational. And that's where he's aligned with the Obama administration. This plan does two things. One, it says we're going to use the strategy that we use within the Obama administration, which is executive authority to do these things that we know Congress won't act on. But he also distances himself from the Obama administration by saying we're going to go way beyond what we did. And initially in that trial balloon that they floated out in the press a few weeks back, he seemed to imply that they were going to continue to do what the Obama administration had been doing. And his main talking point on the stump was, we're going to go back to the Paris Climate Agreement. And as you astutely pointed out, Jigger, that is not enough. People here, we're going to go back to the Paris Climate Agreement, understand that that does not meet the challenge whatsoever. That is purely status quo, and it's almost meaningless at this point. So one of the thing about Biden's uh, plan, which I thought was interesting, is he really does say that he wants a price on carbon by 2025, which most of the other plans don't say. Um, you know, I think what Jay Inslee really did differently was, you know, really push a sectoral policy that looks similar to California. Um, but I think that Biden really puts front and center again that they want to pass a law by 2025 to put a price on carbon, which, you know, is clearly championed by economists and many other people. And and he calls out these carbon tariffs, too, so that carbon intensive goods from other countries that are coming into the United States will get taxed based on the level of pollution they create. Yeah, I don't know that I'm a pro tariff person, but uh, so I I will left I will leave that unhighlighted. (laughs) I do love this tech breakdown in his plan. He talks about getting grid scale storage at one tenth the cost that it is today. He talks about dropping the cost of small modular nuclear nuclear reactors uh, by half carbon free hydrogen using excess renewables production. Um, he, he goes on and on and on and, and talks about industrial heat, decarbonizing the agriculture sector, CCS. He's covering some pretty serious ground here. And I like that diversified approach because it obviously recognizes that we need to go beyond the electricity sector. And he's talking about technologies that are not just wind and solar, the easy talking points for candidates. Yeah, he even talks about urban sprawl and trying to to rein that in a bit. Right. So what about Elizabeth Warren's plan? Again, she her initial idea was let's use the military's power, spending power to invest billions of dollars in renewable energy and get us prepared for climate change. This is a variation of that. Her new plan is like a scaled up version of that. The green industrial mobilization, um, it uses a plan similar to this military one she outlined. She would use the government's purchasing power to make big investments in clean energy technologies, $1.5 trillion over 10 years. So again, it mirrors this 
military plan that she put out to begin with. She got this Green Apollo program, which would be $400 billion over 10 years on R&D, and the Green Marshall Plan, which would spend $100 billion within a decade to export the technologies developed here to the rest of the world. Catherine, thoughts on these three in combination or one of them individually? Yeah. So first of all, her goal is net zero by 2030. Biden's is net zero by 2050. So they do have different uh, years that they're aiming for. And um, the Green Marshall Plan is really interesting because it is about like, how do we get this out to others? And we are the, you know, the US is the hub of innovation for the world. And it's really great to see somebody talking about that and talking about these technologies being something we should be able to export. The The issue I have with this is that, and this just kind of reinforced what I heard. I watched her town hall. It was an MSNBC town hall in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And a lot of her comments were about green jobs. But the way she couched it was, is first we're going to do a bunch of research and then we're going to build these manufacturing plants. And somehow I feel like she doesn't quite understand that like we have a lot of this technology already. Don't you can, R&D is fine, but we need tools to deploy and deploy quickly. And we already have the technologies to start manufacturing. That's not, that's not the issue. And I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect with her between R&D and getting this stuff out the door. On the R&D side, I was confused about why she called for this new agency, the National Institute of Clean Energy, to focus on R&D. Why create a whole other agency? You've already got ARPA-E that's designed to do that. And Department of Energy writ large. No, look, it's not just Elizabeth Warren. I think every politician that I've met outside of, let's say, Inslee and a couple other people believe that our technology is not quite ready for prime time. Right. That is what most Democrats say on the stump and Republicans, you know, sort of joined in gleefully. But like, I think that it's just one of those things where people like say, well, if the technology was so ready, then why wouldn't it have scaled already? Not knowing that, you know, everything in the infrastructure space requires government involvement. Right. You don't we are we are offsetting existing infrastructure that already exists and is operating. Right. So if you want to replace stuff that's already working with stuff that's better, well, then you need a mandate to do that, right? I mean, there's just there's no free market way of doing that. Yeah, and I f- just felt like she missed an opportunity when talking to all of these people who have been in industries that are closing down in middle America to say, look, we can transition. We have the tools to transition. We simply need to make sure that we level the playing field so that we can increase the manufacturing for these technologies. I, I totally agree with you. And and so uh, the one thing on the Elizabeth Warren side, which I thought was fantastic, and you mentioned it, Catherine, is the, the Marshall Plan piece. I, you know, I do think that with China's Silk Road initiative, I do think that the United States has to be bolder around sharing its climate solutions technologies with other countries around the world and financing it for them with Export Import Bank or OPEC or or other types of um, you know incentive programs. That's the other thing that I thought was interesting in Joe Biden's plan too, where he mentioned how all of our ambassadors should be promoting the companies that, you know, that produce climate solutions, which Germany, by the way, has been doing for 15 years. So now we have two more climate plans that have been thrown into the ring. All of a sudden, we've got a ton of great detail on how 
leading candidates would flesh out something like the Green New Deal. At one point, the Green New Deal was just this hollow document, this resolution sitting there. And over the last couple of months, we've seen legitimate policy proposals that might help us achieve a vision like it. What do these two plans add to the mix? Yeah, I mean, this is like a Green New Deal's arms race. Everybody wants to <laughs> like take that. the Green New Deal as like in the spirit of the new Green New Deal. This is what we're what I'm going to do. And I'm hoping they'll actually be able to talk about these some during the debates because it will be really interesting to hear where they're all coming from and the nuances um, of the plans in the end. Who You know, they all have something that's going to move us forward, but it would be so great to be able to talk about it. On to our final topic. Are states blowing a good opportunity to invest in electric cars? Three years ago, Volkswagen reached a settlement as part of its diesel cheating scandal to pay nearly $3 billion into a trust. That money is getting handed out to states depending on how many diesel VWs they had on the road. But a new report concludes that many states are using this money to reinvest in diesel cars and buses, not electric models. Which states are falling behind and what could they be doing better? First, a reminder of what this settlement is all about. Catherine, how did this pot of money become available in the first place and and how is it designed to be spent? Right. So EPA, Department of Justice, the California Air Resources Board and VW, who had been putting illegal cars on the road, um, made a settlement and it was in sort of two tranches. with two liter and three liter vehicles. And around April 2017, that first tranche was settled on and it's $2.9 billion for over 10 years. And like you say, it's divvied up proportionally by state um, based on the number of cars registered, those illegal cars that have been registered, but also uh, tribes and Puerto Rico and other territories in the District of Columbia also have access to these funds. And and with those funds, you're supposed to put put together a plan and the plan, you can take a lot of different actions. You can do up to 15% charging stations, you could do trucks and buses, make them zero or more efficient, airport ground equipment. There are just lots and lots of things that you can do within that plan. Um, Remember, there's also Electrify America that came out of this, which was $2 billion specific to charging stations. So that is where most of the charging station money is. Only 15% of these funds can be used for charging. Um, So that's that's why some of it looks like it's not as much as it could be. That's because Electrify America is doing it, and that is also part of the settlement. So, you know, you can do a lot of different things. There's a lot of flexibility, and you can change your plan. So plans can change over time. Um, and to keep in mind about the diesel piece, EPA has something called DERA, Diesel Emission Reduction Act, which um, incentivizes replacing like the bad old diesels with newer diesels and more efficient diesels. So there are some ways in which some of these diesel replacements are actually getting you to more efficient vehicles. And there's a program that incentivizes that in EPA. So that is that all kind of plays into how these states are executing. The grading here is pretty harsh. I'm seeing a lot of Fs handful of A's, but we're mostly in the the C, D, and F range here for states. Why are they grading everyone so harshly? Well, so here's the thing also. Keep in mind, out of the almost $3 billion, only $228 million has been spent so far. So we are really early days in, in doing these programs. I think the really good part of the report was that it's like pushing states. It's shining a light on them and saying, hey, you need to do better. 
But states are changing. For example, when Governor Paulus came in Colorado, he changed their plan and said, nope, anything that we any money that we haven't allocated so far is going to go to zero emission vehicles. Um, in the same way, you know, Wisconsin was given a really bad grade, but we have there's a new governor in Wisconsin who could very easily change that plan. So I think part of it was to put pressure on the states that haven't done as well to try to get them because they do have some flexibility and they have time to change their plans and do much better. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I keep saying they. The authors of this report are the U.S. Public Research Interest Group and Environment America. Okay, so Jigger, how should this money be spent then? Um, let's say you've you've got this pot, pot of money coming to you and uh, you have the authority to spend it in a state. How would you be spending it? Well, I think we need to start by, you know, figuring out where the goalposts are. I mean, I love PERG. But in 2015, you know, Elon Musk, myself, and 41 other clean energy executives wrote letters to the California Resources Board saying that they should, you know, use the fine money for electric vehicles, right? So before then, like, that isn't what people thought the money would be used for anyway, right? So I think for whatever reason, you know, I think Perg is now saying, well, it's all about electric vehicles. But I don't think that that's where the entire sort of thing started when the Dieselgate st- scandal hit, right? So I'm a little bit turned off by the grading mechanism that PERG is using because it just doesn't feel like the original purpose uh, for the money, right? I, you know, I'd, like for instance, if Iowa decided to use all of its money to move everybody to E85 vehicles, like I think that'd be fine. So my source here is Nick Nigro, who spent a lot of time with me. He's with Atlas Public Policy. He runs something called the EV Hub, where he tracks all this and tries to see, you know, where RV EVs getting deployed. It's a resource for all those beneficiaries, which are, for most part, air quality agencies in states, so they can get information and share information. Um, and he said that some of the best that's coming out of this is that you know, for over 40 states have put in EV charging as a result of this. There are places that are getting electric transit buses and school buses that never, ever would have gotten them before. And so what he says is it's building institutional capacity, that this is really getting communities learning that never would have had the chance to do so before. And that even if some of those numbers look small, that that the result of it could be much greater in the end and in this capacity building and knowledge. Let's wrap up the show and go on over to our free electrons. Jigger, what is your free electron this week? So I was paying attention to an interesting new program that regulators approved um, with XL Energy in Minnesota to create a network of 70 community mobility hubs in the Twin Cities and builds infrastructure for electrifying government transportation fleets. I'm like, I, I thought that the way in which that Xcel Energy had had positioned its community mobility hubs was more unique and different. So some of the money may even be able to be used for the electric vehicles themselves um, on the ride sharing side. And so while I don't love electric utilities rate basing all this stuff, I do, you know, think that the the role that they play in innovation is, um, you know, pretty important. And it's good to see XL Energy proposing something interesting and unique in uh, Minnesota. Catherine, your free electron. 
Yeah, so one of my kids, the youngest, is obsessed with Lil Nas X's song, Old Town Road. And there was this confluence of what my son is obsessed with and what I do on a daily basis when I saw that Lil Nas X had tweeted, when I said I got the horses in the back, it was in reference to reversing the ongoing climate change, water pollution, and catastrophic political climate we are witnessing in these trying times. (laughs) And uh, it turns out Lil Nas X tweets a lot about his music and his songs and fun stuff but also retweets Noah reports and uh, all kinds of other climate bits, which I found really joyful. I was going to choose the same one. So how about that? This is one of the first times that we've, we've overlapped on our free electrons. I thought that was so cool. Okay, so I have to figure out um, my free electron in real time here. I'm just going to go through my tabs and, and look at um, some of the articles I've been reading this morning. Okay, so here's one. This is a report I was reading this morning from the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis that showed uh, that GE's investment in natural gas, its big bets in natural gas uh, in the you know 2015 timeframe, lost investors $193 billion. And GE, of course, has taken this huge financial hit, has, has, to, has had to spin off a lot of uh, parts of its business. But it, it 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 acquired Alstom. It bet big on natural gas, and it assumed that the market for natural gas turbines would be um, in the twenty-five to thirty gigawatt range, and that is about half of what it expected a few years ago. So it's had to write down a lot of these investments. It's faced financial troubles as a result. And it's just such an interesting example to me because GE for the last 15 years actually has been a leader in clean tech. They've made some interesting investments. They've had different iterations of their clean energy business. They were a world leader in manufacturing of wind turbines. But like one big move can cost the company dearly. And it's an indicator of how fast things are changing and also a bit of a head scratcher because GE was once seen as one of the leaders in this area. And they they really screwed up on this one. Hey, Stephen. Yeah. How do you make a small fortune in renewable energy? I don't know. Start with a large fortune. (laughs) I think that's the Donald Trump philosophy. (laughs) That's all for us this week, folks. You can find links to the stories we discussed in the show notes. If you want to add your commentary, hit us up on Twitter. We do see everything you send, even if we don't respond to it. You can support us by rating and reviewing the show on Apple or anywhere you get your podcasts. Send word to your networks if you think that they would like this show. Please, word of mouth is a great way for us to get new listeners. And we're getting new listeners every week. So hello to all of you who are joining us for the first time. Thanks for being with us again this week, folks. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time.